Welcome to What Does This Mean? A discussion of the readings that are assigned in the Lutheran Church for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. It's a season we sometimes call ordinary time or the green season. This week, Jacob gets a new name. Paul has more encouraging words for his younger colleague, Timothy, and a widow threatens to give a judge a black eye. We're glad you've joined us. Lots to talk about in today's readings. We're so glad you've joined us. I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. And we are the pastors at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul. For the next few minutes, we're going to be discussing the readings that are coming up this Sunday. This is good for us because it helps us as we think about preparing for our sermons. But more than that, we hope that these conversations help unlock the scriptures for your own reflection. And um, we always really enjoy the opportunity to talk with one another about these texts. We actually don't spend enough time just dwelling in the Word and talking with each other about the Bible. So I really love these times together. And what's really exciting about This season is that we decided the three of us probably weren't interesting enough to keep people interesting. Well, we're plenty interesting, but (laughs) but we just wanted to add some spice to the mix. So each week we're inviting a special guest to be with us, and we started by inviting uh, several of our staff members to come so that you get a chance to get to know them and they get a chance to uh, quiz the pastors about the texts. So this week we. We are excited to welcome Paul Friesen Carper, who is our assistant director of music. And I always tell people that Paul plays every single instrument that has a string on it. Paul, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a church musician. Um, the most exciting thing about my life right now is that I am getting married to Yay. the fabulous Elizabeth D'Amico. Yay, congratulations. Yay. We're excited. And the other most fun thing for listeners of this podcast is that I am the person who played all the music here. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Gloria Day, how you found your way into being a church musician. I graduated from college and had kind of no idea what I was going to do. So I went and spent two years, two and a half years living at Holden Village. And there kind of after having been a musician and um, done that for most of my life, I grew up as the son of a orchestra director and jazz pianist and composer. There was plenty of music to be made and I got to do it. After I left Holden, I was looking for a way to serve the church and thought I might be a pastor. Went to seminary and then God spared me. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, tell us a little bit about what you do at Gloria Day. Sure. So I am uh, always being a part of the leading of assembly song. And I feel like that's my primary role. Um, I also work with the children's choir. I'm starting uh, working with the bell choir this fall, and I do plenty of um, composing and arranging as well. Wonderful. We're so glad to have you on staff. And really, it's fun to have you here with us today. It's great to be here. We're going to start by reading the first lesson, the first reading for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. This is Genesis 32, 
22 to 31. The same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. I feel like names are a huge thing in this reading. Jacob becomes Israel, whatever this place was before, becomes Peniel. God is like, you can't know my name. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wondering what, what kind of sense you make of what you guys make of names in this, in this way. What's, what's the deal with that? Why the renaming? Why the, the keeping the name? I think it's always fun to think about how a name works in our lives because, you know, your parents probably choose a name for you that they like or that they feel somehow sings something meaningful that they want you as a child to grow into. And when a name is changed, it usually means I have re-identified myself. I've chosen something new for my life from here out. And so when someone else changes your name, this is a sign of blessing in in this text and in this culture that an outside power can change your name to say, I am going to help you re-identify who you are. You're going to see your life completely differently. And certainly the person who wrestles at, at some point we hear it's God, but at the beginning we don't hear it's a God. There's just a person there who's wrestling with Jacob saying, because you understand what it means to wrestle with me, I can bless you. And that's going to cause your whole identity to be changed. I love that. I was thinking too about how in this passage, these new names all mean something that in English we don't really get. Like Mm -hmm. we don't get what Israel means. Or, you know, it's so often um, the names that they get are things that literally mean, like Israel means like one who wrestles with God. And that's kind of lost on us as English speakers. But forever now, Jacob carries this, he's known by this very literal name and the people will call him one who wrestles with God. Um, Isn't it wonderful to be called wrestler? You know, of all things that you could say, not blessed by God, not known by God, not sent by God, but wrestled, wrestled with God. This sense of we continue to wrestle with what is God doing in our world? What is God doing to me? What is God doing to these people around me? What does it mean to be a person of God, to wrestle with that? 
But I think, you know, every time we have some kind of encounter with God, we come away from that different than we were before. Maybe we don't rename ourselves, but we end up reconsidering who we are and what's our reason for being in the world. How are we in the world? What's our primary relationship? How do though how does that shift and change? And I think about my own life as I think about my life of faith that it has really changed over time. The way I thought of myself as a confirmation student is really different than how I conceive of myself now. And some of that is maturing, of course. But I think for those of us of the faith, we really believe that God is a participant in our self-discovery and is leading us and guiding us to discover maybe new parts of ourselves, new giftedness, or even new challenges that we weren't aware of before, but somehow remake us. In this passage, Jacob is polygamous. What sense do we make of that? You know, that that our our spiritual ancestor did something that we would consider really unacceptable. Every time we read scripture and, and hear it as being a description of common life, it throws us for a loop because that is not our common life. And we would say that's reprehensible. We have to be really careful about then looking at those kinds of scripture readings and saying they're normative because we say, no, it's not. It's not what God wants for us. That's not how God wants to um, our relationships to be, to understand him as being an extraordinarily wealthy man who had servants, slaves maybe, and concubines and multiple wives and property is just out of our experience and not something that I think we can point to as being normative for life today. It's another reason why we just can't take every verse of scripture literally, that we really have to go with what is the big picture, what are, what are the primary messages that scripture is trying to teach us, and then how do we take those back to scripture in order to challenge some of the things that we now recognize are oppressive or difficult and don't lead to abundant good life with one another and with God. And you can always have this passage in the back of your mind next time you hear someone say they are defenders of biblical marriage. All right. (laughs) Perfect. Family values. (laughs) Family values right here. Okay. Thank you for a great discussion. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back. Our second lesson is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. And we've been reading through 2 Timothy for the last couple weeks. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you... Always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. So if all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so why doesn't the lectionary use the whole Bible? And I, I mean, I'm sure I have my own thoughts about this, but the, then the other kind of part of this question is what does Paul mean when he says scripture? To clarify your question a little bit, the lectionary is like the calendar of assigned readings for our Sunday service and for all of our services, and it's a three-year cycle, and we don't read the whole Bible in the course of three years. We read big pieces of it, but there are also big pieces left out. So your question is, if it's all inspired by God, why don't we read the whole Bible? Right. You know, when I was in seminary, I was taught, you know, that the lectionary is what we have chosen uses that proclaims Christ. But I feel like that's not a terribly convincing argument to people who say, like, I'm a full Bible church. Well, it's interesting you raise this issue. There's a lot of discussion about that little this little phrase. And most scholars believe that in the Greek, we read it in the English, but in its original Greek, it's kind of a confusing sentence and doesn't have parallels in other parts of Scripture. So automatically, that's like a little red flag. It just kind of <laughs> appears once you want to be careful about it. Well, it's interesting because we we just talked about that reading from Genesis and how you take that story literally that something wrestled with Jacob. But what do we really mean by that? Was it was it God? Was it someone else? You know, we we have a lot of confusion even in the text itself. And then those questions we had about marriage and what that means right away. It's like, are we saying that that is literally true or what are we saying is inspired? What part of that is inspired? And for me, the question is about what does the word inspired mean? Does it mean it's factually accurate? Does it mean it's historically true? Does it mean it's authoritative and every single thing needs to be followed to the letter? Or does inspired leave room for it's something that's good for us to reflect upon? You know, I always think of this inspired language in really kind of the same way 
we use that word now, that when someone is inspired, for example, Paul is going to write a piece of music. Actually, I was leaving church this past Sunday, and Paul was sitting in the sanctuary just playing I don't even know what that instrument was. Oh, it was my six-string electric cello. Your six-string electric cello, just sitting in there playing. And I said, what are you doing? He's like, well, I I felt inspired, so I thought I better sit down right now and work out this tune. And I think that's exactly how it is in Scripture. It's kind of like when we feel captured by something that's larger than ourselves that spurs our creativity that spurs our connection to God and that we want to produce something, we want to write something, we want to paint something. We um, And I think that's um, how we understand the people who are writing the Bible. Um, it's not that there's a little bird on their shoulder saying, now I'm going to tell you the exact words to write down. Right. It's we get, a, we get a feeling and write it down. And I want to hold out the possibility that the stories that I just can't possibly believe are factually true still have meaning for me today, even if they are, quote, myth, you know, like even if they maybe didn't happen the way it's described, that the fact that it's in the Bible um, shows that there's something important for me in this. I don't have to necessarily believe it in a factual kind of way. It can still be inspired. That makes sense to me that that it's somehow this inspiration that is important, that someone said this means something and it doesn't necessarily have to be A equals whatever. What's important to remember here is what Paul is saying overall. Timothy is feeling unsure and challenged and trying to discern whether he has enough to do what he needs to do. And Paul is really trying to encourage him, saying, you've got the, you have the scriptures within you. You you already know what you need to know. And so um, the scripture here is to provide him with encouragement and a sense of confidence that he's part of God's family. So I think that's The primary use of Scripture is to deepen our faith, to convince us of God's love for us. If we're using Scripture to say, you're in, you're out, we may be missing the overall point that Paul is really trying to make. So the other question that I had, which I think we kind of meandered our way to, um, was, you know, how do we we respond to people who use these verses to— about doctrine to kind of criticize progressive Christian faith. That's not what these verses are for, I think is kind of what we're saying, that that this is this is about in, the encouragement or gospel rather than law, this is what you have to use. Or... That seems like a good place for us to stop and take a quick break. Thanks, Paul.
Welcome back. Our gospel lesson is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Thanks, Pastor Javen. What do you hear, Paul? What comes to mind? <laughs> well, first off, I just have to say the the words of the unjust judge crack me up. Because who says to themselves, well, I don't feel anything for God, and I'm a pretty immoral person, you know, but fine, whatever. The contrast then with God is that, and then God who is, who does care about justice and is is moral, is going to answer. But I think that brings up the age-old question, you know, so why is there injustice in the world? We see so much of it. I like how this is connected with that reading that we had from Genesis, the wrestling with God, because I feel like this is one of the things we really wrestle with God about. We know that you are just and you do care about people and you do care about one and all of us and all how we get together. And yet we do demand justice that doesn't seem to be coming to us. And and um, is God leaving us limping after these these wrestling encounters to say, I don't understand why we're still suffering, why we're still so frustrated? And there's some amount of grace in the fact that Jacob is renamed Israel, one who wrestles with God. For all of us who also wrestle with God, to know, actually, this is sort of what defines God's people, is that we are people who wrestle with God. And even when we don't get the answer to Paul's question, we we find something, there's something helpful in knowing God God loves us as people who wrestle. God blesses and us. And it's okay. Blesses us in the in the wrestling. Blesses this this um widow who's complaining. Um there's a blessing for her in the end that somebody does hear her, in spite of the fact that that person doesn't really want to hear her. And I think it's so hard for us to get past a very childlike understanding of what God is, that we imagine God as a person in a place, maybe maybe not on a throne, but deciding which prayers to answer and which prayers not to answer. And I think there's a kind of literalness that we hold on to about God that makes us read this text and end up despairing. But I think we have to keep saying God is spirit. God is what 
connects us to one another. God is the energy of the universe, the love that flows in, with, and under all things. God is not like us, like a person who sits in a place. It's just so hard for us because we need we need to concretize it. We need to have need- kind of metaphors and images for us to understand. But as soon as we create those, they end up creating problems for us too. I think the parables, they're hard for us because of that, because they do like to picture God in you know, accessible terms, like a judge. And in this case, it's so confusing because God isn't unjust. This is an unjust judge. What does that even mean? An unjust judge is like an <laughs> uneven parallel bar, you know. Um, what do we mean by something that's unjust and yet judge? And and yet we do hear the parable saying, and so God is something like this or something not like this, but then it it causes us to have this concrete image that's hard to wash wash away. Well, and I want to trust that wrestling with this, wrestling with what is right, what should be, does actually shift and change the universe, that it changes the energy within us, it changes the energy around us, and that has an impact beyond us. There were two two phrases that I think could use some demystification. One is talking about chosen ones. And I always worry about chosen ones because then who are the unchosen ones and what does that mean? And then the other kind of word phrase is when the son of man comes. You have hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> but they're and they're good. They they are good questions, though. I think, and I because I I think one of the things we always have to remember is uh, at the time that these texts were written, the Christian community was very tiny, um, and there was a strong feeling within that community that they were outside the norm of things. They were underground. Yeah, right. And so I think for them, talking about themselves as chosen ones was a way not necessarily to exclude anyone, but to convince themselves that they were with God and that they were carrying this really profound message to the rest of the world. I think anytime we start thinking about who's in and who's out, we have likely misunderstood the gospel. Especially when we are the dominant force in society. It just it reads differently for us than it did for that group that was – they were the outsiders who were excluded and forced underground because of persecution. And it's not really the position we Christians find ourselves in today. The Son of Man comes is an old image from – different uh, prophets from the um, Hebrew scriptures. And there's a sense of justice coming. When the Son of Man comes, there will be some kind of day of judgment. And that's where we get some of those images in our in our culture. But there will be a time where God's servant or God's self will arrive on earth and set things right, balance things out, make things right again. And that's obviously... V- one ones who are living under oppression are longing for that kind of justice to come and uh, longing for that uh, reality to be birthed into the world that now God's justice will be operated. 
I just feel like I should say one more thing. Um, at the beginning, I said a widow who threatens a judge with a black eye. That comes from um, this part where it says, "I will." the judge says, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. Actually, the Greek wear me out literally means give me a black eye. And this judge is really only concerned about the fact that maybe he's going to end up with a black eye and then everyone will know his injustice um, and that that's what causes him to act. It's not just that he doesn't want to get worn down by this woman. It's that he's actually afraid of how it will look to the world if he doesn't act on behalf of this widow. So anyway, I thought I should probably say Talk about wrestling. Yeah, really. (laughs) Well, that's a good place for us to end. Thank you for joining us today. We're interested to hear from you about what you think all of this means. Um, drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. A special thank you to Paul Friesen Carper for joining us today and for providing the music that you hear throughout this podcast. And a thank you to Marshall Saunders of Minnesota Podcasting for producing these podcasts for us. We'd like you to join us for worship every Sunday at either 815 or 1045, and note that we have Sunday school for all ages between the services at 930 a.m. Thanks so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com. 